0: Is it for patients with disabilities to navigate your healthcare organization? Have you asked individuals with physical disabilities in particular how they might assess things in terms of access, care coordination, timeliness, and support services? What would your organization's care providers say? Answers to these questions can be both sobering and constructive, but more the latter if the information is used to address gaps and move in the direction of disability competent care. We're fortunate to have some members of a learning community actively following this path on today's program so we can learn from them. Surfacing defects, drop balls, and developing action plans in order to better serve patients with physical or functional disabilities. That's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live bi-weekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer and IHI's director of communications, Madge Kaplan. In some respects, the improvement community is catching up to issues and needs the disability community has been pointing out for decades. On the positive side, this means there's a lot of experiential knowledge to draw upon already to accelerate necessary, excuse me, necessary changes. And QI has its own track record, along with methods and tools to bring to the improvement table. So this makes for a strong combination, we hope. So let's get to our guests, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's here in the studio with some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John.
1: All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is our chat window, and if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone, and the number is right there on the screen. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and their number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources that are mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge.
0: All right, thanks so much, John. And if you like to tweet, thanks for using our handle at the IHI in your comments so others can be part of the conversation. Now to some brief guest introductions and a reminder that there are longer bios on our website. Joining us by phone is Rebecca Bills. She's a licensed independent clinical social worker who's been with Medica Health Plans in Minnesota for the last 10 years, in her current position of clinical manager, Becky, as we're allowed to call her, works with a great team of 40-plus social workers and nurses who deploy a person-centered approach. Welcome, Becky. Thank you. All right, glad you're here. Regina Martinez Estella is the Chief Operating Officer for Independence Care System, Inc., that's a Medicaid-managed long-term care program serving people with disabilities and senior adults in New York City. She has over 25 years of experience that's been directed at improving access to health care for people with disabilities. Welcome, Regina. Thank you. Rachel Stakem is who's a nurse practitioner and Senior Vice President of Care Management at Independence Care System. Over the past 14 years at ICA, Rachel has established specialized programs to meet the needs of those with neuromuscular conditions such as multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injury. Welcome Rachel. Hi, happy to be here. Terrific. Christopher Duff is a disability practice and policy consultant with over 30 years of experience in the development, delivery, and financing of disability competent care services. He most recently served as executive director of the Disability Practice Institute and was lead author of the Disability Competent Care Assessment Tool, which you'll be hearing more about on today's program. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. All right. And last but never least, Gilbert Salinas is the Chief Clinical Officer at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center in California. Gilbert is also the Interim Director of Performance Improvement for the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. Gilbert was a 2013 Kaiser Safety Net Fellow here at IHI, and we're so glad he's with us today. Welcome, Gilbert.
2: Thank you, Madge. Great to be
0: here. All right. We're just going to get going now. The first question is going to go to Chris Duff. And, Chris, you have the honor of framing and contextualizing our discussion today. Let's just start with a definition of disability-competent care and take it from there. And welcome again, Chris.
3: Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate it. My job is to kind of give people the foundation for what the others are going to show they have done in practice. So I'm going to be much more... um, strategic and foundational in in my presentation. Briefly, when we talk about disability, we talk disability as being a consequence of an impairment. We are not talking about disability in terms of a diagnosis or a disease. The disability is how you interface with the community. So what is disability competent care? Disability competent care delivers care and support to support an individual's maximum functioning while addressing barriers to timely and appropriate care. As you all know, the current challenges of the healthcare delivery system Mm -hmm. is that the care is reactive, it's fragmented, it's inaccessible, and it's standardized and uniform. While that may be okay for many of us, it only gets magnified with every additional piece of complexity you live with. So can you imagine with you spend half of your life interacting with the healthcare system, how those four concepts become so problematic. And that's really what disability competent care is all about, is beginning to bring those together to be proactive, to be integrated, to be accessible, and to be person-centered. That's the goal of disability competent care. The other speakers are gonna talk about how do you do that. The results that we're looking for, are pretty simple, avoidable costs, both human costs as well as financial costs, misaligned incentives. We want the, uh, um, we want the silos of care to start coming together. And then to make primary care available. Most people with disabilities don't get primary care. They get episodic care, but really not primary care. So what are the core values of disability competent care? As I said earlier, participant centered respect for the participant choice and dignity of risk. And what we mean by that is all of us in healthcare have been trained to provide our knowledge and our expertise and recommendations for the individual. There are times when the individual is not gonna choose not to follow our our recommendations, our perceptions, our, our suggestions. Our job is to educate, to train, to coach But do not take that right of choice and dignity from the individual. That's especially hard when you are working with people with disabilities. Third core value is to eliminate the bias of the medical, of the medical world and the institutional world. These elements can't just be done by the primary care doctor. They need to be present everywhere in care delivery. From the front office staff to the customer service staff to the practice organization. I was in the waiting room yesterday. In a hospital, in a radiology department, there was a guy wheeled in, an older gentleman, dropped off by the driver. He clearly had no idea where he was. There was no one with him. He was dumped in the middle of the exam room, middle waiting room, because there was no place to put a wheelchair. The woman from behind the reception desk, when she had a chance to get to him, was kind of shouting across the desk at him, and he couldn't hear her. Um, So there were a lot of problems there. There were architectural problems. There was care management problems. There was basic communication problems. It's not that receptionist was a bad receptionist. It's a she and that setting was not prepared to be disability competent. That's just one little example of what we're talking about here. So, disability competent care. Key words I'm gonna focus on is participant centered, delivered by an interdisciplinary team, and focuses on achieving and supporting maximum function. Function is our focus. Again, not diagnosis, not disease, but function. Our goal is to maintain health, wellness, and life in the community as the participant chooses. The model recognizes and treats each individual as a whole person. I said not a diagnosis or a condition. Oh yeah, he's a 3-4 quad. No, he's a quadriplegic living with He's an individual living with C4 quadriplegia. Lastly, is it structured to respond to the participant's physical and clinical needs while being sure to consider their other needs. So when we talk about the Disciplinary Competent Care Practice Model, we see it as having three pillars or three components. Relational team-based care coordination. Key word there is relational and team based Team-based is interdisciplinary, Physician, nurse, social worker, and a long-term care specialist, and others as needed. Relational, these are complex individuals who have complex needs. You need a relationship in order to be able to impact their care. Responsive primary care, traditional primary care doesn't work for this population. Responsive means timely, that so they can get in today. Or if they can't get in today, someone gets to them. Because the last thing they need to do when they're not doing well is end up in an ER. And then flexible home and community-based services. There's people with every level of functioning who can live in the community if there's the right supports in place and if they so choose to do so. The next slide, the the slide I, I was just talking to you about, I'm sure many people think, oh my God, how can we afford to do that? And this slide shows the business case for how you can do that. The top bar shows what is the basic cost basis for a population of people with disabilities, significant disabilities, who do not have disability competent care. What that shows is when you look at all their health care dollars, over 50% of them, some surveys research shows 60 percent are on inpatient care. You got basically 11% in pharmacy, very little in primary care. As I said, they basically can't get it. And long term services is another good chunk with virtually no care coordination. When you implement disability competent care, this is the kind of outcomes you can see from a financial perspective. The inpatient costs go way down. Um, and you can use those dollars to pay for primary care and care coordination. What you can't impact is Long-term services and supports services, not much savings to be had. People need a lot of attendant care at home, and pharmacy. Pharmacy is a fair amount, as you can see there, and there is a lot of polypharmacy. But for the most part, work on getting those down is really nickel and dime. That's, I mean, it's certainly worth attending because it will have good health outcomes. But we have not seen a lot of financial benefit. So then, how do you do that? This last slide I'm going to get to on, on the business model is very. It's kind of a complex slide, but simply, if you look at the patient characteristics, participant characteristics, the bottom part is, that repu- that's reflected in about two-thirds of the blue triangle are people with low, relatively low needs. Um, they have episodic medical and functional needs. They minimally interface with the healthcare delivery system. Uh, and that affects, that characterizes about almost two-thirds of people with disabilities. You have those with moderate functional and medical needs. They can be characterized as having one to three chronic conditions or and or concurrent behavioral health needs. They generally have less than two ADL dependencies and limited or short-term home care services. In other words, someone coming to the home to deal with an issue for two weeks. It's that top triangle that that reflects probably 20% of the population and 70% of the dollars. They have high medical needs and functional complexity. They have a lot of ADL dependencies. They generally get extensive continuous home-based care. They average between five and seven multiple or chronic conditions, and they're on 10 or more medications. So the key to it is that bottom group, 50% of the N, a standard healthcare home does well. So your job is to hook them up with that. That middle group, they would probably function pretty well in the healthcare home with system-based care coordination. That top group needs the full t- three pillars of disability conflict care that we were talking about. They need relational care coordination. They need redesigned primary care. They need flexibility in LTSS and integrated provider network. So that gives the concept and the key and the challenge for all of the providers is how do you get
0: people into the right level of care that they need so Chris I want to uh, this is just a we're going to hold on your two additional slides here because I think we're going to get into some of the resources uh, where people can access some stuff thanks to all your work and those of others in the community but thank you for um, yeah as everyone knows on WIHI We ask people to distill an enormous amount of information and experience because we feel it's worth it to get it out here uh, to you, and there's a lot of different ways that you can follow up. So I want to thank Chris Duff for uh, taking uh, yet another domain of improvement and important work and boiling it down uh, for for these purposes on WHI, and then you have an opportunity to ask Chris all kinds of questions. So thanks, Chris. We're going to move on now to Becky, and Becky, when I look at the home page online for Medica's what's called its Accessibility Solution Plan. It certainly looks pretty good to me, but of course there's more to it. So there's an interesting story about what Medica found out when it used some assessment tools to get a deeper look, and I'd uh, love it if you could uh, tell us about that, and welcome again.
4: Thanks, Madge. I want to start off by giving just a really brief history as to why being disability competent was so important to us as a health plan. Um, we began offering our accessibility solution plan several years ago. It's a voluntary program for eligible persons ages 18 to 64 on medical assistance who live within the service area and have a certified disability. There are five health plans, all nonprofits within the state of Minnesota who offer this similar program for persons with disabilities. And we all have a slightly different model under our contract with the Minnesota Department of Human Services. So currently there are approximately 48,000 Minnesotans on the program and Medica is serving over 21,000 of these members in our program. We cover the members' medical assistance benefits. We coordinate benefits with Medicare if the member has Medicare. Our care coordinators working with our members, are licensed social workers, registered nurses, or individuals with experience in and in a real deep passion for working with persons with disabilities. And of course, being that I'm with a health plan, we are interested in controlling costs by decreasing activities such as avoidable hospitalizations and inappropriate or avoidable emergency room use. And the goal of this program is really to promote primary care and preventative care visits. And as Chris had mentioned, that was has been a kind of a gap. Um, and we have found that one of the most effective ways to get this message out to our members about the importance of primary care and preventive care is by offering them the support of a care coordinator. There there are benefits to being with a health plan such as Medica in a program such as this. We are able to do some things that are really cool for our members such as maybe an enhanced transportation service, free fitness club memberships, and then we have access to reporting um, based on utilization and we can run a lot run a lot of cool things to give to our care coordinators that they can use in when they're working directly with these members we have access to data such as emergency room use inpatient stays the access of mental health services and also we're able to run some reporting on gaps in care to show the members maybe who isn't filling their medications on time things like that so in In our plan in particular, each member is assigned a care coordinator who meets with them in their home to conduct a person-centered assessment at least once a year. The assessment is its lengthy, um, I will admit, but it really gets into medical needs, mental health needs, activities of daily living. It talks about housing, safety, falls, pain, and then advanced care directives. Our care coordinators then become the members' primary contact to Medica and become available to answer members' questions, address concerns. They also help with any kind of transitions in and out of the hospital to home and then offer a lot of education to the members. So when we first completed the Disability Competent Care Assessment Tool back in 2013, it started off as really just being to, we were a resource to give feedback on the tool and the scoring process. But in doing the tool, we were really excited to see the areas we were doing well on. And then also it was really interesting to note the areas we could improve on. So I'll start with the real positive. An example of an area we thought we were doing well in is related to our assessment or our health risk assessment process and how we conduct those face-to-face with our members and their home environment. We felt that the assessment really addresses topics just kind of across the board and what's important to the member and also really focusing on person-centered and then those members goals now an area we thought maybe we could improve on after doing the tool was in communication and engagement with our primary care physicians so we knew we always complied with the state contract requirement in the area of communication with physicians but there was really more we could do in terms of really engaging in conversations with our providers. So in speaking about our disability competency care assessment results with our medical director, he was very interested in our goals to improve our communications with PCPs in the community. And he really believed the way we were going to get um, get better in this area was to have our staff have more face-to-face interactions with those physicians or providers and thinking, and have the staff really think ahead to what they want to discuss with the providers and kind of get a game plan in place. So that's the area we chose to focus on in our work with the IHI learning community. So to be quite honest, it hasn't been really, always really easy to get our staff on board with starting to do more PCP visits. Um, we conducted a survey to gauge where we were at. We had our medical director speak to the group talk about the importance of getting in front of those PCPs and some tips to talk with the PCPs we've provided the staff with education information and tools kind of some tips and tricks on how to make the most of those conversation with providers and how to best support the members during those visits and along every step we've really been sure to let our staff the care coordinators know that the work they are doing is they're doing great things and they're working very hard and attending a PCP appointment with your member is not always going to be easy you know there's the distance to the members appointments time spent traveling time in the waiting room that all adds up and uh, when you already have a very busy day it can be difficult to to um, try to make that a priority so um, recognizing that with the staff I think has been really helpful And we're already hearing um, of member success stories. So some of our staff have really engaged with their PCPs, really kind of embraced this movement we're trying to make, and and have had member successes come out of it, come out of getting in front of those PCPs, going to the visits with the members, and really explaining the value of care coordination and what we can bring to those visits in terms of a support but also information that those providers may not have so since our initial completion of the disability competency care assessment several years ago we have now completed the assessment once more um, all the way through and have further engaged our medical director in our work it's been really helpful to have the support and assistance of the medical director as he's been able to validate the work we've done in this area and then at Medica, we have a really great group of nurse practitioners who work really closely with our care coordinators and have regular interactions with them. And I feel that, that those interactions have, have also increased our care coordinators' confidence in speaking with providers. So overall, I think we've been, we're really well on our way to getting away from the model we had where our PCP communication, um, was generally a faxed letter or a mailed letter to a physician after we've met with the member. Now now that we're having more of a face-to-face interaction, it's just really exciting to see things change in terms of the plan of care and things move forward. And I really am convinced that the work we did in going through that Disability and Competency Care Assessment Tool and then my work with the, the great IHI learning community has really kept us moving forward and has helped us get to where we are today. Um, I, would, I would be silly to say that we're done in all our work but because we, we really have some work left to do in this area but I really feel we've laid out a good foundation and I remain very optimistic that we'll reach our goals And then we'll be able to go back to the assessment we had completed and, quite honestly, pick another opportunity and start working through that. So it's a really exciting time, and we're really proud of um, the efforts we've done and excited to have been involved in the program and the project.
0: Thank you so much, Becky. Really, really appreciate it. And Becky had sent me all kinds of interesting slides inspirational slides and particularly that one about uh, success not always being what it seems and we hope uh, you'll enjoy downloading that one i'm um, also um thanks for that and john go back again to the assessment tool before the hour is up i promise and maybe even before chat although uh, we're, we're kind of moving along here Um, this um, website resourcesforintegratedcare.com and this tool on this website is just one of the many things rich things that you can find there that can really help you begin to figure out where you could map out some work and I promise I'll I'll give uh, Chris... um, dub uh, just a, a couple of minutes to make sure everyone understands what you can get out of uh, all the materials there. So let's keep moving. Thanks, Becky. All right, Rachel and Regina now are kind of sharing a slot from Independence Care System in New York City, and uh, they let me know that they're working uh, hard also on this care coordinator linkage with primary care, which seems essential um but to not duplicate so much they thought they would talk a little bit more also about some of the work they're doing on preventing secondary conditions so welcome again rachel and regina and whoever wants to go first please do thanks
5: thank you Madge. this is regina and and i'll take the beginning of this and then i'll turn it over to rachel and maybe just to give you a little bit of history and um uh, better understanding of who who we are at ics i'll start off with describing the organization, our, our roots, and then talk a little bit more about the work that we're currently doing. Um, ICS is a nonprofit managed care organization, and today we have two programs. The first is a Medicaid managed long term care program that was founded in 2000. It's a program that covers care management as a direct service and also covers all the Medicaid covered benefits outside of primary, acute, and pharmacy services. Um, outside of care management, all of our other benefits are provided through contracted providers, um, and we are serving today about 5,300 members in our managed long-term care program. We also recently launched, at the beginning of this year, one of the FIDA demonstration programs, uh, Medicare-Medicaid plan that integrates the long-term care benefits with the primary and acute benefits, and this program serves about 300 people today. In both programs, our care management um, program is structured with nurses and social workers delivering most of the care coordination services, and our nurses are primarily focused on completing assessments in the members' homes to determine their service plans and um, general health assessment, health risk assessment. And then the social workers working in collaboration with the nurses and primary care doctors in, in some cases to develop a care plan and to maintain and manage that care plan throughout the um, six-month period between the nursing assessments, and um, just again to give you a little more background on who we are and it's important to to know about ICS because it shapes the way that we do our work. Is that we were the first and only managed long-term care plan in New York City dedicated to working with adults with physical disabilities, and and that. That's our roots. That's where we started. We also now today serve seniors and adults with chronic conditions. Along with that, it's important to note that from our inception the leadership at ICS, both at the board and at the staff level have included people with disabilities. As an example, the director of our women's health program is a woman with a disability and a long-term disability rights advocate. Several of us on the leadership team come from a leadership, from a disability rights background. We've also, from inception, had a very active member council. So in terms of participation of our members and making sure that we're person-centered, we've included the voices of our members all along. And they are very involved in helping us to identify problems that lead to poor service delivery and overall de- dissatisfaction with health services. Um, so through the involvement of our members, leadership, and staff in the past 15 years, we've learned a lot about gaps in care and um, about the prevention of secondary conditions. And to kind of piggyback a little bit on something that Chris was talking about earlier and the example that he gave and that really was a nice demonstration of the things that are, that cause barriers to care for people with disabilities. We've done a lot of work in terms of training frontline workforce and including I, everybody at ICS and most people within our partnering organizations and, and on a disability sensitivity program. And I'm gonna turn it over to Rachel to talk a little bit more about what that looks like and then some of the work that we've done around preventing mm-hmm. secondary conditions.
6: Great, yeah. Thank thanks you. Regina. Hello to everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna start by just saying that when we are looking at how we wanna prioritize our work at ICS, we, we start by looking at what our members value. So particularly for our members with physical disabilities, what's important to them? And then we also look at what are their healthcare needs. And as Chris highlighted, we know that primary care is a gap. Very often people with physical disabilities will see a specialist, but do not have access to primary care. So they'll see a neurologist or a physiatrist, but are really not getting the needed checkups and and care that they they need. So we wanna make sure that uh, they have access to primary care. And then access to the screening and testing that they need based on their their age group. In addition, we we create these um, programs to address the secondary conditions. So in in the on the topic of primary care, our work has been very similar to Becky's. Becky's were really trying to increase the collaboration uh, with the primary care provider, but in addition with the member, we want to be in support of the member and the provider. And so we, in in the learning collaborative, have looked at embedding a care manager at one of our primary care sites. And we are hoping that that care manager, and this is just beginning, um, can really provide the, the expertise of the, the person who has expertise in disability, so to help the provider, and also make sure that at the time of the visit, that there is a mutual understanding of what the member needs and then how those needs are going to be addressed and that the care manager can then follow up with the member on the plan plan of care. And in addition, in regards to screening, we've also started a women's health initiative that is led by Marilyn Saviola that has gone out to these diagnostic testing uh, centers and to train the staff on, disab- on the needs of people with disabilities to look at workflows and how um, some of those workflows might impede people with disabilities. So uh, even if you look at something like a mammography, it, uh, having a mammography done, you need to make sure that it, it's accessible to someone who's sitting in a chair, that that can come down and meet them where they are and that there's proper positioning so that you get a quality uh, a quality exam and so we've been working in in increasing care to that for the our members when we look at secondary conditions uh one of the leading the leading issues for our members cause of hospitalization and also of um, mortality morbidity and mortality is really issues that can be prevented such as wounds aspiration pneumonia urinary tract infection that Uh, can result in neurosepsis, and so we've created programs around those issues. All of our members have a Braden assessment completed to determine their risk of pressure ulcer, and in addition, and we do, we have have interventions that prevent it, such as making sure they have the right skin barrier, making sure they're on the right uh, mattress or cushion in their wheelchair, In addition, if someone does have a wound breakdown, we have a group of wound care nurses that will go out and evaluate the wound and make recommendations to the provider on how we can promote healing. In regards to urinary tract infections and pneumonia, we have clinical pathways that look again at prevention and then what to do. So very often, the symptoms that are presenting in people with physical disabilities are not typical symptoms that would present in people who able bodied people. So if you're if you are a woman who has a urinary tract infection and has multiple sclerosis, you wouldn't necessarily get the sensation of burning. Instead, your spasticity might increase. So really helping members understand and. Identifying those symptoms early so that it can be treated outpatient and that they, and you can prevent um, worse outcomes. Because very often when our members are in the hospital, they wind up coming out with more, uh, in in worse conditions. They've lost functions, they developed wounds. So we try very hard to keep people outside of the hospital, out of the hospital. Um, a couple of other initiatives that we have here at ICS is we, we created two specialty teams, one for multiple sclerosis and the second for spinal cord injury, because we wanted staff that really understand the condition and the symptoms that can occur from those disease, from that disease or from the condition. And so we have nurses and social workers that have a subspecialty with, with those, with those diseases and conditions. In addition, we have a wheelchair evaluation and seating clinic. I spoke before about really looking in the community and seeing if there's an opportunity to partner. And unfortunately, we do have a few places that we can send our members, but because they're so rare, our members wound up waiting a very long time to get the equipment they needed. And so we developed a wheelchair evaluation and seating clinic in two of our offices, one in the Brooklyn office and one in the Bronx office so that members can come in and get evaluated. They have an opportunity to try to demo a chair to see if it meets their needs. In addition, we also have a wheelchair repair uh, team that can go out if it breaks down in a member's house, or they can come in and kind of upkeep it just like how you would do a tune-up for a car. And lastly, I just wanted to speak about um, home care and really expanding the role of the home care worker our average member, uh, on average, our members receive 8.5 hours of home care a day. And that home care worker is in, can play such a pivotal role in supporting our members. And how, so we've created a senior home care worker role where that, our senior aides can go out and support those home care workers to help the member with their person-centered service plan and really help them meet the needs and identify changes early and support the member in getting the care that they need. So those are some of the initiatives that we've done at ICF to meet the needs of people with physical disabilities.
0: Thank you uh, very, very much, uh, both of you, um, Regina and Rachel, for laying all that out. I know these are all big topics unto themselves, and I appreciate your just giving us this really important overview. I think it all loops back to um, what Chris was really saying at the beginning in terms of really looking at the person. And the experience of care and coming up with with some of these interventions and services that really have to do with sort of the lived experience in healthcare. So very grateful. All right. We're going to hear from, uh, now our dear Gilbert and, uh, thank you for your patience. We are running a little over our usual half and half on the show. So we hope um, you are grateful for the info you're getting. And I promise if we don't get to all your questions and comments today, we'll figure out a way to get to them afterwards. So uh, one way or another, uh, you won't be left hanging. All right, Gilbert, uh, the mention of wheelchairs uh, and is definitely right up your alley in terms of what you're going to tell us about. So uh, welcome to WIHI.
2: Thank you, Madge. It's a pleasure to be here and thanks everyone for, for being on the call. Um, I wanted to just start, start off by talking a bit about Rancho Los Amigos. Um, you know, it has a rich and illustrious history of reshaping rehabilitation research. Um, for more than 125 years, the clinicians at Rancho have really been committed to helping patients rebuild their lives. Since 1989, U.S. News and World Report has consistently ranked Rancho as one of America's best hospitals in rehabilitation. Um, We see uh, an approximate 4,000 inpatients uh, each year and 71,000 outpatients per uh, visits um, per year. And we are also attached to, to, we're part of the LA County Department of Health Services, which is the second largest public hospital system in the country. At Rancho, we have a very deep history of a commitment to our patients, a the common theme that I often hear among staff and patients is that there's a sense of community. Patients come here, um, you know, they go through rehabilitation um, and, and then they come back for services. We have a wellness center, we have peer mentoring programs, we have a uh, patient advisory council, many programs on grounds um, that patients come back to um, after being discharged from Rancho. I also wanted to um, touch a bit about something very specific that we've been working on um, during this disability-competent care community work. Um, You know, at Rancho, we've recognized um, through efforts of our patient advisory council and other patients, um, that there was an issue regarding uh, patients receiving their durable medical equipment in a timely manner. Um, To set the stage, if we can go to the next slide, to set the stage, um, you know, I, I want us to uh, think about a patient that um, you know spends time uh, in rehabilitation, learning how to mobilize in a motorized wheelchair, for example, um, ready to integrate back into society, um, has you know great great support from staff, um, both their therapists uh, and all the clinicians that they they work with while they're in house, um, and upon e- discharging um, back home. Um, Patients have to sit at home and wait for this piece of equipment, um, in this example, a motorized um, wheelchair, to come to their door so that they can begin um, with with their lives. Um, If you take this, uh, if you consider this um, most humane aspect, um, you know we we really are uh, failing our patients um, by not being able to provide uh, some of the uh, some of the equipment that they need um of course at rancho um this issue has been raised up um all the way to the highest levels of the organization um and everyone uh was in support of this work moving forward um understanding that it's something that we might be able to uh, play a, a role in um and within our internal systems we really took it up amongst our uh, our team here to develop ways to identify gaps that exist, um, we have also partnered with um, some of our uh, payer sources. We have also partnered with some of our vendors um, that provide our patients with wheelchairs, um, and they have been helpful in helping us identify some of these gaps. Now, how did we get there? Um, we we utilize two methodologies. We utilize some. Some parts of the model for improvement, and we also utilize Lean Six Sigma. Um, we use um, various tools like value stream mapping. Um, we used a charter to identify our aims and our process measures um, to know where we were heading. Um, we use priority matrices. We use affinity diagrams. Um, we use A3 reports. We also developed uh, run charts and developed our teams uh, so that we can uh begin to address this um systematically and strategically um what this has led to is that uh it, it, first of all it's it's the situation is is very complex you know when dealing with authorization um there's uh, many people that are uh being very proactive um in helping uh these processes move forward um and then there's other uh situations where patients are still running into barriers to get their their equipment, and that might be informed um in a way of authorization um, from from a health um, insurance um, provider. Um, we might be waiting for the information to uh, come back to Rancho so that we can process it, um, and and that might take you know months. Uh, we had one recent situation where you know it was it was well over um, 88 days where a patient was waiting. Uh, for their equipment. Um, so this has really opened up our eyes to the learning and the possibilities. It really inspires hope to really address barriers for people with disabilities and also develop partnerships across the country with providers and like-minded folks that are really willing to take on, um, some, some of this, um, work to decrease the barriers for people with disabilities. Um, this really touches, um, across um, all the different domains that Chris, um, Becky, and Regina all talked about earlier, um, th- these are situations that happen to our patients on any given day. Um, in the first slide, pointed to um, over 200,000 people living with a spinal cord injury in the United States with numbers increasing um, as, as the years uh, come, come on. Um, so these are, these are real issues. Um, and we're looking at addressing them um, at the localized level and also at national levels um, with our partners here with the um, disability competent care assessment team um, that we have developed.
0: Thank you, Gilbert. I I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would you say that there have been I I think it's in the blog. So Vicky uh, sitting here in the studio with us very nicely put the link in to a very interesting discussion between. Gilbert and his colleague uh, Charmaine Dorsey at Rancho. Um, I think you have cut the waiting time down. Uh, not not all, exactly where you want to be, but it is coming down, isn't that the case?
2: Uh, Madge, and so we, you know you're, you're right. We 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 should celebrate early wins, and <laughs> uh, I have to say, uh, as, as everyone should. Um, and um, I so I would like to say that here at Rancho, um, Charmaine Dorsey has really led our team. Um, um, amongst other clinicians as well. We have also had uh full on support from physical therapies and outpatient services and physicians. Um, and our partnership with um, some of our vendors and healthcare providers um, have re- have really gained momentum um in, in leading to successes. So we have actually um, started to measure um, some of the delays and the reduction of those delays. We have had some early wins. Uh, I just I, I can uh just share with you uh, we haven't uh Published all the results yet, but just um, the other day we got a phone call from one of the therapists um, that was very excited over the fact that her patient received um, a piece of equipment, a, a wheelchair, um, in 32 days, which which was huge um, compared to our baseline of uh, 88 days. All right. Wow. Um,
0: Thank you, Gilbert. (laughs) All right, early wins, exactly. we got to make sure to highlight that and wish you well as the work continues and we can hear more about it. All right, well, thank you, Gilbert. And everyone has been extremely patient. Uh, I think you all more or less understand the chat. Uh, We'll get about 10 minutes of that in before we have to wrap it up. But, uh, John, you want to just quickly remind people, Uh, in case you haven't gotten the hang of the chat yet.
1: If you haven't gotten the hang of the chat yet, uh, by all means, uh, make sure that you send to all participants in the bottom part of the chat bar. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you. All right, I'm going to go back to the beginning and our uh, wonderful Chris Duff, and I think, Chris, I'm going to ask you the question uh, that somebody has asked, which is the application of what uh, we're talking about today today uh, for pediatrics. Um, we are, of course, I think implicit in a lot of this has been the adult population, uh, but it's relevancy for pediatrics. And I think I'm going to let you also then just sort of swivel right into, uh, tell people about this uh, website and how they could take advantage of it. And we'll throw a slide up there about that. Thanks, Chris.
3: Absolutely. And I also can take a shot at the question around um, how how this is different from... Um, medical homes so first of all peds and kids i think our the people who uh, have been on the call of presenting today we may have anecdotally had some experience with um adolescents but for the most part these models have been developed primarily to serve adults with disabilities disabilities is functional limitations and by adults we don't mean that you stop at age 65. um so we um at the same time The concept and the model is certainly very applicable for younger populations. It just gets more difficult because you have multiple insurance companies, you've got ERISA, you've got private insurance, and it just becomes so much more complex. There are a few places nationally that have developed some specialized programs to serve kids with disabilities, and if you do some web searches, you should be able to find that. But none of our programs have um, specifically focused on that population.
0: Okay, medical in terms
3: of the medical in terms of the medical home. Very quickly, just simply saying, um, medical homes work well for the majority of us. But the more complex you are, the more secondary conditions you have, the more the medical home breaks down. In terms of how much time you have with the doctor, in terms of is the waiting room accessible to you, and um, in terms of access to care coordination. And so it, it really boils down to w- the capacity and, and competency of that medical home to meet the unique needs of this population in particular. The other thing that, that's tied to this very quickly is some people who are very complex, someone who lives with C4 quadriplegia, which is very little physical functioning, um, care coordination and primary care just runs behind them because they're going to take care of themselves they need no help. But someone with the very same physical condition may need maximum assistance. So again, it's individualized. So sliding into the website, just all we're going to do. I'm not going to talk about the assessment other people have. Um, you can look at the assessment in detail. It's long, but it's really queuing you in on what is it you need to look at to consider whether you what your opportunities are for increasing your disability competency. No one will be fully disability competent probably in our lifetime the goal is to get there so i tend to look at it as aspirational keep getting better at what we're doing keep finding the opportunities and as becky said go back and reassess um there's more to do and when you're at that website you'll find we've done 20 some webinars on different topics related to disability competent care they're all up and a bunch of other related materials
0: Okay, thank you so much, Chris. Question for Becky. Somebody was asking about the discipline. Somebody said, what discipline are your care coordinators? Becky.
4: Becky? Social workers are registered. Oh, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Uh huh. Okay, um, our care coordinators are licensed social workers or registered nurses, and we do have a few other disciplines in there primarily focusing on expertise in mental health.
0: Okay, thank you very much. There's another question, Jeanette is wondering about input from the disability community. I think ICS was talking about the fact that many of those folks have roots in the disability community uh, and a lot of integration there, but a question about that and also an acronym that, I'm sorry, I don't know what that stands for, SILC. Um, uh, so, but somebody might. Uh, Rachel or Regina, you want to t- uh, talk about that? All right, I'm looking for Rachel and Regina. Are you there? <laughs> Did we lose them? Rachel and Regina, can you hear me? All right, I'll ask Chris then. Chris, are you there?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure what the F stands for, but the ILC, Independent Living Center, um, there are 400 and some across the country. Um, and yes, they have been involved um, a great deal in building the disability competency assessment tool. There were several people who, were, who lived with disabilities who were co-authors on that. And we also piloted it with a bunch of other individuals. So people with disabilities have been actively involved. I guess F stands for state.
0: senate for independent living
3: council thank you jeanette i appreciate that yes thank you but yeah yeah movement very actively
0: involved all right thank you jeanette uh that's right so state independent living Councils and if anybody wanted to throw up any relevant website there as a resource, that would be great. And I'm glad actually somebody uh, spoke, Jeanette mentioned that this is, these councils are mandated by the Americans with Disability Act because I was going to mention at some point, in case you haven't seen it already, the latest issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, uh, just out this week, uh, has several pieces devoted to the 25th anniversary of the ADA, which comes up later in July, uh, this 2015. So what timing on that. All right, I, I think what we're going to do, um, all these, um, Catherine, oh, I see a question here. Are these programs also available for the persons with disability who live in rural or remote regions, or is transportation made available for the persons with disabilities to get to these programs? Um, I think it varies uh, if if you're talking about our guests today, uh, but I don't know. Chris, do you want to maybe take that one?
3: Repeat it to me again. I'm sorry, it's reading the Somebody is
0: wondering, and uh, they're trying to get a sense whether some of the things they were he- hearing about, Medica is in Minnesota, ICS is in New York City, we've got Rancho out in the Los Angeles yeah. region. They're trying to say, wow, are, are programs like this happening in more rural or remote regions? I hope that's uh, um, what's being asked.
3: Generally, um, if that's the question, generally not. Nah. You know, as with all systems change, you got a couple creative people who are going to challenge the system uh, independence care system is one of those minnesota as a state several organizations in minnesota have done that massachusetts there's some progressive stuff california there's some really progressive stuff it's got to start there and then it goes out um there's um there's a program in illinois now that's actually modeled after the massachusetts program so it's beginning to happen but for the most part it's it's only in select places The key to all of this is these programs I talked about, it's the integration of Medicaid and Medicare services. Because until those dollars can be looked at as one set of dollars, you're just gonna get people fighting over who has to pay for what. And in Minnesota, in New York, California, in these progressive states, Massachusetts, they are building programs to do that.
0: Okay, fine. I hesitate, if Rachel, Regina, if you're still with us or connecting, there was a question and is a question, I think we can get sneak one more in here, about the response from the primary care physicians or providers, um, and that could go to Becky as well, in terms of the care coordination and the integration there. Um, Rachel, Regina, are you there? I don't know how, I'm so sorry that we lost them. Becky, are you still there?
4: Yep, I am still
0: here. Well, what about the response from uh, the provider physician community?
4: You know, I think um, overall it's been really positive. We've heard of some examples where, you know, the care coordinator would contact the physician clinic or office prior to going just to let them know they'd be accompanying the member. And they've met a little bit of resistance. But we're hoping with time as provider groups and clinics really understand the value of care coordination that maybe that resistance will lessen. So I, I think there's some learning still an opportunity, but not 100% um, yet, but we're getting there.
0: Okay, thank you, Becky.
4: All right, John, throw up uh,
0: one of our final slides that we wanted to share with you today, because the work continues. And uh, go ahead, John.
1: Yeah, just really quickly, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about this, and we'll be sharing some details um, uh, on the archive page tomorrow. uh, But there is a disability competent learning community that's being launched uh, next month, um, and it's being offered by IHI and the Lewin Group. Um, and it's being helped by CMS Medicare Medicare, Medicaid Coordinating Office. So if you want more information, contact Marie Schall. She's at IHI. She's mschall at IHI.org, and we'll be posting a little bit more of that information up with the archive page tomorrow. All right, thank you very much.
0: All right, uh, and this learning community, which if we had more time, uh, we could kind of go into it, but you have to understand part of what you're hearing today is the embodiment of the work that's going on, that has been going on in one iteration of this community, and uh, the work will continue now. Um, perhaps, uh, Chris, will some of the same organizations be involved, or are you looking for a brand-new batch?
3: I think we're going to look at the organizations that you've heard from today, as being faculty, they've been through it. They had some lessons learned, and they will serve as faculty uh, for the new one.
0: All right, that's actually great. That's that's what we want to hear. All of you on today's call becoming faculty, I love that. All right, I'm going to do this uh, in the interest of time. I'm going to uh, send a big shout out to our audience today. Thank you for your interest in this topic. We hope if you got some value. Uh, out of it, and you're trying to seed some discussion and awareness, you'll take advantage of some of the tools here. You'll share the audio, which will be posted tomorrow, along with all the resources. So I want to thank Chris, Regina, Rachel, Becky, um, also Gilbert, and Marie Shaw in the background, who helped out quite a bit in bringing all of this work together. And we look forward to returning to all of it. Uh, in, in another, I don't know, several months, and we'll see kind of what other projects. And we hope you'll take advantage and get in touch with Marie Schall at mschall at IHI.org and see what's up with the next uh, wave of this learning community. Next up on WIHI, on June 25th, we're going to be talking about the IHI Triple Aim, Lessons from the First Seven Years, and that's based on a just-published article in Mill Bank Quarterly, which... Uh, We invite you, that's um, very visible on the homepage of IHI.org and some really, really valuable and interesting uh, material there uh, that you can take a peek at, and we hope we'll see you on June 25th. A reminder, you can download the chat, all the slides we used today. You can find the audio tomorrow morning. And if you have any questions whatsoever about anything you heard today or anything was confusing, please email info at IHI.org. Um, we hope you got something out of today's show. Again, thank you to our guests. Thank you, audience. The people who helped make WIHI possible include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Mario Bello, and Ruth James. And I want to give a special shout out to IHI's Gail Freeman for all her support in engagement with me and WIHI and the crew here for the past four years. Thank you, Gail. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.